Good afternoon, or should I say good lunch? Uh, welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Claire Sorrell with the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. This program is a continuation of last month's subject about climate change. The two programs present very different positions, and it should be interesting to hear both. We are honored today to welcome Renee Oyos, Executive Director of Tennessee Clean Water Network. Oyos created the Tennessee Clean Water Network's litigation and environmental health programs and expanded the network from a small nonprofit to a leading voice for the environmental community in Tennessee. Oyos also serves on the boards of Knoxville Transportation Authority, the historic Bijou Theater, and the Community Health Alliance. She rafts, hikes, and is a member of the National Ski Patrol, patrolling on the weekend at Cataloochee Ski Ranch in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. Renee will talk about Cool It, the Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming by Bjorn Lomborg. Please welcome Ms. Hoyos. Well, thank you, everyone, for spending your lunch with me in this book. I'm presenting this book as, as me, <laughs> and nothing I say today should be construed as a position of the Tennessee Clean Water Network. Uh, these are just my thoughts on the topic. When I was 13 years old, a friend of mine took me to see A Distant Thunder and A Thief in the Night. These are two movies produced by the Evangelical Church to show in graphic detail the end times. These movies were so frightening that they scared me to the altar, and I was a fundamentalist for almost 10 years. And in that time, I lived in fear of hell, that God was waiting to catch me and punish me for the slightest infraction. Um, I will tell you that these movies, has anybody here seen these movies? Yeah, these are really frightening movies and shouldn't be shown to children, but they were. And I will tell you that I did not make the best decisions in my life in those 10 years because I was living under a lot of fear. So after uh, leaving the, the fundamentalist community, I joined the environmental movement, and I noticed some similarities. The environmental movement has its deity, and it has its prophets, and it has its symbols, and it has its practices. It has its devils. These are the Koch brothers. I didn't know what they looked like either until I put this presentation together. They have its, it has its apocalyptic ending, and it has its heretics. And we'll be talking about one today. Bjorn Lomborg is a true heretic. He was a Greenpeace activist for many years. And many say he's turned his back on the environment, but you'll have to read the book to decide for yourself. Bjorn Lomborg is a Danish author and environmentalist who is an adjunct professor at the Copenhagen Business School, the director of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, a nonprofit think tank, and a former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute in Copenhagen. I first learned of Bjorn Lomborg when his book, The Environmental Skeptic, came out in the late 90s. I was working for the California Resources Agency under the secretary, who is the same as the commissioner here, 
we were just starting to deal with the consequences of climate change. At that time, California had been in a moderate drought for about 10 years, and we foresaw increased forest fires, flooding, mudslides, and drought. We were grappling with how to deal with it. So when the environmental skeptic came out promising solutions to create resilient communities, I was really excited to read it. But when the environmental group's reviews came out, the book was largely panned. It was actually viciously panned, and I was too (laughs) intimidated by those reviews to read it myself. So fast forward 15 years, and and now foundations ask ask me as the executive director of the Tennessee Clean Water Network what we're doing about climate change. And when I tell them we're working to create a resilient community, um, they say, great, what are you doing about solar? Well, we're a water group. You know, we don't really work in solar. So I thought, well, I've got to wrap my hands around the climate change thing for our organization. So I Googled the 10 best books on climate change, and lo and behold, both of his books showed up in every list that I saw. So I thought, well, heck, I'll read it now. So who here has read the book? Hands up. One, two. Yeah, cool it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Cool. Okay, good. A lot of people. How many here think that Bjorn Lomborg is a climate denier? One? Okay. Well, um, I do want to read from his preface. He says, That humanity has caused a substantial rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels over the past century, thereby contributing to global warming, is beyond debate. So he is, uh, under some definitions of a climate denier, he, he does not fit the description, although some definitions of climate deniers also include if people are unwilling to commit to a total reduction of CO2 emissions. So depending on what definition that you aspire to, then he is or is not a climate denier. So before we launch into the book, I do want to say that I am not a climate scientist. I'm not evaluating this book as a climate scientist. So if anybody here wants to debate the science of this book, I really, I I can't be helpful. But this book was thought-provoking to me because he breaks with the party line that the world is just going to end hot and flat. And I say to you right now, there will be climate winners, and it won't just be the rich, though they will likely have an edge on the rest of this. And the idea of winners in a climate change scenario is very, it's a very hard concept for environmentalists to to agree with. Everything, you know, is kind of a crisis. And I speak from experience when I say we won't make our best decisions if we are, um, operate from a place of fear. So to give you some context, this book was written in 2007. Uh, The Kyoto Protocol, which we don't hear much about these days, was just starting its first commitment period of 2008 and 2012. So the protocol is this this gigantic strategic plan for the reduction of greenhouse gases. And like a lot of strategic plans, it's probably a, a doorstop now. But it has all of these things in it, all of these entities in it. But it was widely known back then that the commitments wouldn't be enough to stabilize greenhouse gases, but we soldiered on. And just this past year, Canada left the protocol. So a lot of the big major CO2 emitters just either wouldn't sign or, you know, wouldn't commit or committed and didn't reach their targets. It was, it was kind of a failure. The premise of this book is that all the attention and money focused on the Kyoto Protocol could be spent on solving today's problems so that the world is more resilient in the future to withstand the effects of climate change. And this is kind of a heretical statement because 
all the focus in the climate world has been on reducing uh, the global temperature by two degrees. And the second heretical statement in this book is that the language in PR around climate change is overblown, fear-mongering, and ineffective. How many have seen this picture of this polar bear? This picture got 41,000 shares on Facebook. The author of this picture stated that the bear is suffering the effects of climate change. And then there was this huge uproar. In fact, a good friend of mine who was a PhD in ecology from the University of California at Davis posted this picture on her Facebook page and had this sort of plea that we need to end climate change. The author of this photo is actually, she's a photographer, and she states in her blog that she has no scientific proof that the polar bears' populations were suffering from climate change. And experts immediately jumped on her and said, you know nothing about this bear. This bear could be sick. This bear could be injured. This bear could be old. To say that it's the effects of climate change is a misstatement. But we didn't really hear about that reporting. What we heard about was, you know, climate change is a problem. Polar bears are an indicator species. They're a charismatic megafauna, and they're dying. In fact, in the book, he states that the World Wildlife Fund put out a statement saying all polar bears will be extinct by 2012. Now, I couldn't find that. I looked up the reference, and I couldn't find it. Um, so it was either removed or he was wrong. But I vaguely recall a statement about them going extinct very, very quickly. Um, so in this book, Mr. Lomborg, using a report from the polar bear specialist group, um, is kind of flip and says the, the biggest harm to polar bears is really hunting. And I looked at that website, and I looked at the report, and actually, there's a lot of things affecting bear populations. It's not just hunting. Um, and who knew that, polar, that a threat to polar bears is digging for mammoth ivory in the Novo, Novo Sibirsk Islands? Um, that was a new one to me. <laughs> but um, basically, what this report said was, what we know about polar bears is largely unknown because there are many populations that just simply haven't been studied. So they would list the populations and they'd say, no data, no data, no data, stable, declining, stable, declining. You know, to say anything about polar bears and climate change is really to not say much because there's really not a lot of data out there about polar bears in general to make a statement that climate change is affecting them. But it doesn't mean that the polar bear specialist group doesn't think climate change is an issue. It does, and in 2006, two of the eight resolutions were passed concerning the effects of climate change on polar bears. So it seems if we reduce some of these negative impacts to polar bears, then climate change has less to work with. So the next thing he takes into consideration is this notion of temperature. And Mr. Lomborg states that there are more deaths from cold weather than from hot weather, and actually in a recent Lancet study uh, confirmed that we do have 20 times more deaths from cold weather than from hot weather, but we really only hear about the hot weather deaths. And I guess it's because, I don't know, they're more gruesome than the cold weather deaths, or maybe they play into the narrative a little bit more. He says in the book that if the global climate temperature shifts to a warmer world, we have less deaths due to cold and slightly more deaths due to heat, and we can overcome the heat deaths with technology. I think he's been called the Hitler of the environmental movement because he's really very analytical about how he treats human life, and he's, you know, sort of a very kind of a cold and economic view of, you know, we'll get more deaths or less deaths, and I, I think it makes people very uncomfortable to have to make those kinds of choices. 
He does provide some solutions around dealing with a warming world, and one of them is the greening of cities and white roofs, and I did run down the rabbit hole on white roofs, and there's uh, organizations all over the country that paint roofs white and are actually getting fairly good results from from painting roofs white. I, I didn't know that either. I also have to give some props to the city of Knoxville for saving all the properties on the south side. The urban wilderness has been probably the single best investment the city could make towards protecting us from a warming world. And he mentions this, greening of cities, tree planting, these sorts of things, protecting areas from development. These are things that create resiliency within a community as the planet becomes increasingly hotter. So uh, if anybody from the city is here, um, thank you so much for working. So, And Legacy Parks Foundation, of course, and the Appalachian Bike Club. It was excellent what they've done for us. Of course, he spends all his time really skewering the, the Kyoto Protocol. And uh, I'm not going to say much except to say that, you know, we all knew that it was largely symbolic and something of a losing proposition because it was really too expensive and it was, getting, it was going to be harder to implement in the future as uh, some of the, the programs were actually gaining legs. You know, he talks about how much it would cost. He thinks it would only have given us a 0.1 to a 0.3 degree increase, which would give us a five-year uh, break on a warming world. You know, I, I, to me, all of this is just peering into a crystal ball. You know, we don't know the future. We have good modeling, we have good data, but we don't really know for for certain. And this 5 to $15 trillion investment, actually I heard on Planet Money that it's actually closer to $18 trillion. That's a lot of money that's being diverted from other, that could be diverted from other programs. That's, you know, money that doesn't go to uh, improving infrastructure, that's money that doesn't go to improving our health care or improving education. All things that he says we really need to be working on. We need to provide sanitation and clean water to countries that don't have it. We need to educate our population, especially women. Um, these are the things we need to spend our money on, not necessarily trying to get this. And then do some modest CO2 emissions. Uh, he then goes on to some of these other things that we hear a lot uh, in regarding climate change as, as far as glaciers are concerned. It's, yes, they're receding. Kyoto Protocol wasn't going to stop that. I mean, that, that train has left the station. And putting all this investment into lowering CO2 emissions is not going to stop the glaciers from receding. How many here saw an inconvenient truth? Yeah, to me, it's like the environmentalists, you know, a distant thunder and a thief in the night, almost. I mean, I was terrified when I left the theater. Um, as you can see, I'm easily frightened. But do you remember that he predicted an 18 to 20 foot um, sea rise? The most recent IPCC report said that we're going to experience a sea level rise to be greater than in the past. Uh, Mr. Lomborg says, you know, the sea level rise that we talk about, it's, it's not going to be 18 to 20 feet everywhere. And if you remember the movie, he, does, he has this graphic where he shows the globe and you see this 18 to 20 foot sea level rise in goodbye Manhattan. You know, everything was gone. Almost the entire Florida panhandle was underwater. Um, and, it, you know, these kinds of things are shocking and stunning. And the IPCC report from 2016, basically, or 2015, rather, said that sea level is going to increase. They didn't say how much, and they said it's going to vary. So he was kind of right about that. It, it is going to vary. But the overall point of the book was really to sort of debunk hysteria about all of these claims. 
Extreme weather, if you guys remember, very soon after An Inconvenient Truth came out, a lot of, of uh, climate scientists were like, no, 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 hurricanes will not get worse. Do you remember this? It was quite a big row in the press. While the IPCC has released bigger probabilities for weather events to be climate change-related, I think Mr. Lomborg makes an interesting point in the book when he says we really don't care about these big events except for the economic damage that they create. And I have to say, you know, if a hurricane blows out over the Atlantic, do we care about it? I mean, I always go, phew, dodged a bullet. What's on Facebook? <laughs> Um, so we don't really think about it all that much, but when it hits land and it causes a lot of economic damage and loss of life, that's when we care about it. And his strategy was we need to prepare for these large events, which means better building codes, better emergency response, encouraging people to move back from the coastal areas and from areas where there's increased flooding. And I think these are things that a lot of communities are looking at as strategies to, to deal with these larger weather events. So he goes on to talk about malaria. Um, if you recall in An Inconvenient Truth, you, you'll see that graphic where as the, as the temperature warms and malaria spreads to other countries. Well, uh, we used to have a lot of malaria in this country. 35 to 50 states stated that malaria was a serious health um, public health problem, you know, 100 years ago. But now we have better health care. We have access to clean water. We're better fed. We have air conditioning. We have a lot of first world amenities that give us a protection against malaria. If we use some of that 15 or $18 trillion for better health care, access to clean water and food, and mosquito nets globally, we can help other countries resist malaria, as we have been able to resist it here in this country. In his conclusion, he said to consider the politics, and this is a really interesting statement and something that I had thought about when we were trying to pass the climate bill many years ago. One of his suggestions was to tax CO2 at a much lower rate than that bill suggested. That bill wanted something like 36 to $38 a ton. And, you know, that was just a non-starter for industry. And you've got to get everybody on board with these things. And, the, and you really should understand the politics before launching into this. Industry was not going to pay. They might have paid $2 a ton, but they weren't going to pay 36 And we insisted on it. We're gonna, you're going to pay a lot. And so the bill died. And we created such bad feeling about this whole issue that it'll be a generation, I think, at least, before we can bring any kind of carbon-reducing bill back into uh, the legislature. It took us 150 to 200 years to create a carbon, a fuel-based society. We can't really unravel that in 15 years. In fact, and he stated in the book that Doing something this drastic could cause global markets to collapse. And, you know, do we want to live in this world where we don't have heat in the winter, where we don't have air conditioning in the summer? I, I don't really want to drive less. I mean, I'm just going to admit it here in front of y'all. Like, I, you know, I don't want to give up my warm, toasty little house. I don't want to give up my car, even if it is a Prius. <laughs> You know, these are things we have to think about as we move on to this. And, and one of the things that I like what he said, and I read something that uh, he wrote about the Paris Treaty. He said, why are we trying to make fossil fuel so expensive? Why don't we make green technology cheaper so people automatically make that shift? And that's what he says in the book. Take some of that 5 to $15 trillion and put it into R&D on renewables and give people this better, a better market choice than trying to kill off the, you know, the, the carbon fuel industry. 
So, uh, you know, that's kind of all I have to say about it. This book's very controversial. I'm, I was very nervous. I was joking with Emily that we need an armed guard because so many people hate this guy. Um, I have to say, I, you know, I can't make any statements about the science he used or the model he uses to come up with his conclusions, but this, the two main thoughts that he provides that, you know, we've got pressing problems now and spending a lot of resources and money and time to try to lower the global temperature a couple of degrees to the expense of all these others is probably not a best use of our resources. And two, scaring people about the future. Speaking from a position of experience, I can say we won't make our our best choices scared out of our wits about what the future is going to bring or scaring the next generation. Um, It's just going to make people turn away, and I think in many ways it has. Um, So I want to thank the public library and Emily, and um, the Friends of the Library for putting this together, and the City of Knoxville, the East Tennessee History Center, and my staff who read the book with me, and uh, they're all here today, and they helped me um, figure out this book a bit. So I'm happy to take questions, or you can all just, you know, I'll put the, I'll put the target on my forehead, and you can just go ahead and, you know, have a shot. You started this by asking if who thought he was a climate denier. That in and of itself is a negative term. And once you mentioned that he is, was as referred to as the Hitler of the, the environmental uh, action group, and that's the, another negative term. If you look on Wikipedia, one of the first things they start out with is the Lomberg deception. So all I'm suggesting is that part of the problem is He's suggesting a balanced decision-making process following, you know, whatever research you do. But the guy's being vilified simply for having the idea. It wasn't that long ago that on the Weather Channel and MSNBC, somebody suggested that if you were a climate denier, you should be decertified as a weather forecaster. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And this is the kind of so-called debate that needs to end. Mm -hmm. You know, there needs to be a respectful discussion of the issues and not just vilifying your opponent because you disagree with them. That's all. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm just sort of repeating what I heard people, you know, some people were like, oh, you're going to you're going to review that book. I thought, oh, (laughs) I'm going to get shot. Um, I'll admit I only made it to page 40 something. (laughs) But uh, from the point of view of just the author as a writer mm-hmm. of a book like this, I wanted more detail about those trillions of dollars that were going to be spent for Kyoto and how that money was supposed to be raised and spent so that he got to the economic analysis that he came to. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't examine his arguments for fallacies mm-hmm. because of the lack of detail. Mm-hmm. I tried to follow some of the stuff, you know, I tried to look up some of the articles to get a better handle on it, and it, it got very confusing. And that's why I didn't really want to necessarily talk about his version of the climate science, because I'm not a climate scientist. But one of my staff people brought up that, you know, he, he doesn't talk at all about the ecosystem. You know, what happens to the ecosystem in all this, and how, as the planet warms up, what happens to, you know, animals and plants that are used to 
living in those in those zones. And another staff person suggested that well, plants and animals aren't buying books. So, <laughs> and you know, and the same. I'm not qualified really to talk about that, but I do work in the environmental community, and I can talk about the PR. And the PR can be a little rough sometimes. And you know, we have got to reach over everybody's current day issues and concerns, you know, to get the point across that our issue is important. And sometimes hysteria creeps in. And I've noticed that. And it has made me not want to really think about climate change because it's just too frightening. And, and I think we have a responsibility to be more balanced. And I understand that we want people to, like, pay attention to what we're saying because we think this is important. But like I said, it pushes people away after a while, and it certainly didn't do us any favors in Congress. Like I said, it's going to be a long time before we see good climate change legislation. It probably won't be in my lifetime, honestly. I mean, I think it's going to be another 20 years before people can kind of forget all the scare, all the scary, scary stuff that was said. And then he talks about climate gate, which really, that was a terrible blow to the environmental community when that happened. You know, when it came out that scientists were trying to engage more in the politics of climate change and, you know, sort of moving their numbers around a little bit and trying to make things out to be worse than they were. So that, and they admitted we did it so that we could get some kind of a political response. Well, you know, that, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't helpful. Yes, I'm about to be rebuffed. Uh, I, heard I think that you will. Uh, I was going to keep my mouth shut, but uh, the climate gate thing was devastating, but it was devastating from a PR perspective, not from a science perspective. There were, what, 15 studies on that data that indicated that the scientists did nothing wrong, and that was, that was just hyped way out of proportion. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, it was hyped. And that, and that, and that but was it the wasn't problem. hyped by the scientists. It was hyped by the climate deniers. They said, look, this is a big deal. It's a smoking gun. And every study that, that followed that up to say, did they do anything wrong? Was there any misrepresentation here? All of them concluded that there was no evidence of any of that. So this was, this was the PR on the, on the uh, climate denier side. This was Heartland Institute. This was, uh, this was ALEC. This was these folks doing this stuff to, to discredit the scientists. And you mentioned that you're not a scientist. I am. Um, okay. I'm not a climate scientist. But one of the things that as a scientist you do is check your sources. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about Lomborg is it's the only book I've ever read where there was an entire book written debunking his sources. Mm-hmm. And I read that book as well mm. and traced those references and discovered that not only did he misquote and quote out of context many of the references that are in the ends of his chapters and his mm-hmm. chapter notes, but that he falsified information from many of those sources as well. So ultimately, the guy's just not credible. Okay, you did, you did the work. Opinion. I couldn't. You know, like I said, I couldn't do. I couldn't do that kind of work. First of all, I didn't have time. And second, I'm not a scientist. I don't have time to run down every every study. But one of the things that I found compelling about what he talks about is that. You know, what kinds of choices are we going to make in the future? You know, how are we going to balance poverty and education? If you look at what the UN has been saying recently, you know, climate change is on their list, but it's not the number one thing on their list. 
And uh, for those of you that are following what uh, the budget that Obama just released to, to Congress, he cut clean water funding in exchange for climate programs. And I had to say, you know, what... What kinds of things are what when we say we're funding the climate what what are we what are we funding in the wake of Flint there's not going to be money for municipalities to fix their drinking water systems I think I you know that's what I worry about I worry that things are getting substituted out good programs that need funding and good good projects that we should be funding are now not getting funding for climate change work and I'm not quite sure what that The International Energy Agency in 2013 uh, did an analysis that indicated for every, let me see if I can remember the numbers right, for every dollar spent today on mitigation would save $4.50 on damages in the next five to ten years. Mm -hmm. So I think we're already seeing that the price that we will pay in the future for mitigation and adaptation is much, much higher if we don't spend those dollars today. So we really do have to spend those dollars on reducing the impacts of climate change today, or we're going to pay more in the years to come. Okay. Hi. So I have two questions. Mm -hmm. First of all, how do you think generally climate change as a subject should be introduced to young people? And also, Mm -hmm. it seems that there's a great deal of trade-off between different environmental causes when it comes to funding and attention. And uh, how do you think there can be more, let's say, money generated to serve these issues without taking from other environmental issues? Uh, for, chi- for, the, for children, I mean, I think you need to be careful about how you pitch a warm, you know, this warming world. And, you know, I think you just should be really gentle about it. The next few generations are going to have a lot to deal with, you know, because climate change is just going to take all the problems we have now and make them that much worse. Like I said, we have these pressing needs now. It's going to be about a billion dollars to fix infrastructure in this country around drinking water. And we saw what happened with Flint. And so we need more, more dedicated funding to fix the broken infrastructure that we have now. As you said, you, you know, you seem to have the numbers that say that for every dollar, we get a dollar in return. But if we don't have fixed infrastructure today, it only gets worse. So we've, we're going to miss all these dollars from, uh, from this program to go into climate change. And these lead pipes just deteriorate more, you know, especially in the Flint area, you know, are not going to have relief from, the, from this problem if there's not money to fix it now. Um, just uh, maybe some words of advice to the climate change community, because <clears throat> I think uh, what we need is ROI, return on investment of, and what do we get back for these? Because as you discussed, there's, now there's competing. Do we do wind? Do we do solar? There's all these high, I mean, you can have a lot of respect for all these technical analyses, scientific analyses, and they're snoozers for the public. I mean, I'm an outdoorsman. I, I love the environment. I'm out there. But if you go through all of this environmental stuff, it's kind of a snoozer. But if you say, let's have a group clean up Fort Loudon, let's clean up the parks, okay? Something down to earth where people can say, you know, if we do that with the environment, then we get a payback. Then I think a lot of the public would be more receptive to this. And if even some of the environmental studies said, uh, instead of the prognostication of the end is coming, Here's, if we do this, here's what we'll get back. They'd get a lot more receptivity, and I just think it needs to be a lot more down-to-earth. 
I think that people on both sides of the issue, the climate change deniers and the people who think that we should invest all that money, I think that in breaking down these, um, these facts and pointing out, well, this study says this and that study says that, that you kind of miss his overall broad point, which is if you have X amount of dollars and you have a problem that has a solution right now that will save X million number of lives, do you go ahead and do that if you have the ability to do so? I mean, those are human lives. And that is kind of, it was it's kind of a, an overarching argument that I thought that made me think a lot deeper. And like you said, sometimes the value of human life becomes difficult to really talk about in those terms. But maybe we should be. To maybe harmonize Lomborg with Naomi Klein in the two books that we've read back to back, the last third of her book gets more down in the trenches with the people building resilient communities and saving their resources. And I, I think there could be a harmony of approaches between how he's saying we can invest trillions of dollars and how she also sees the need to invest in these resilient communities in ways that are complementary, not necessarily antagonistic. With, with the right vision, you know, a vision of good, healthy communities, you know, there's more than one way to get there. I've noticed this in the, in the environmental community that we fight too much. And, you know, the same could be said for the, for, the, for the climate change community, I think. You know, we, we're a little turfy, and we want to make sure that our voices are the ones that are heard, the individual group or the individual itself. And um, like I said, you know, this book was the, the first book, The Environmental Skeptic, was promoted as a way to um, make resilient communities. That's what the publisher said. I was looking forward to reading it. I didn't read it. I don't agree with everything this guy says. You know, I, I can't, like I said, I can't refute the numbers, but I, I can, like I said, talk about how, how we talk about it. And I think that was a fairly large part of what was in this book, was how we discussed this. Um, but uh, I, can, I can completely see and understand that he may have taken the data and just given it a good, hard twist to make his own point. Um, happens all the time. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. If you went down the rabbit hole and saw that he was lying about stuff, well, you know what? Uh, that surprises me not at all, to be honest. So, Yeah, um, I agree with my friend John that, that um, the uh, economy is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think we have to make a strong economic argument to persuade anyone, especially conservatives, mm-hmm. Uh, the first really good cost-benefit analysis for climate mitigation was uh, the Stern Review, uh, which the British Treasury Commission back in 07, I believe it was. And Stern concluded at that time that the, the cost of not mitigating climate change would rise to between, I think it was 5 and 20% of gross world product per year forever, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. 
they're they're taking a closer look at sea rise. And James Hansen, who's probably the most respected climatologist of all, and his colleagues found recently that um, sea level may actually rise, uh, I think, as much as 19 feet within the next 50 to 100 years. That would pretty much wipe out two-thirds of our great cities all over the world. That has a spectacular economic impact. Uh, The IPCC uh, said in its last report that for the first time in the last decade, crop yields were level. They've been rising every decade previously. And they attributed that to climate change and and predicted that they would begin to fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, we're heading from from 7 billion population now to an estimated 11 billion, uh, give or take a few billion, by the end of this century. (laughs) So it gets a little hard to feed all those people, let alone provide them clean energy, protect them from disease. I think the the economic case for doing something about climate change, ASAP, is completely compelling. And that's why those 195 nations in Paris all agreed that we need to keep uh, temperature rise below 2C. And that, uh, in fact, if we can keep it below 1.5C, that would be much better. I think that This is the greatest crisis we've ever faced as humans, uh, at least that we knew about. But I think that means that as individuals, we have an opportunity to do more than we've ever had. For me, spending my time on this problem is very rewarding because I know that this is forever. You know, it's the whole world, everything in it pretty much forever, at least as far into forever as we can see. So many of the things that have been written and many relevant parts discussed today tend to be a simplified argument in a certain direction, picking out parts or links of a complex problem. But I think libraries, which are sponsoring this session, and teachers at all levels uh, have a a big challenge, and that is how to help the next generations of not only researchers, but people who have positions of responsibility in the public and in business to get acquainted with uh, a systems approach. A lot of the discussion seems to me to be based on assumptions that haven't been articulated, such as it's important to maximize value to human beings or maximize the number of human beings. Todd mentioned the um, kind of prediction that we're going to have 9, 10, 15 billion people on planet Earth in the next century. Uh, To me, I think that's a disaster, regardless of whether the climate changes or not. So... um, Part of the problem, it seems to me, is the philosophical basis for how the world is governed. And, you know, historically, the, the Western economic system has been based primarily on extraction and exploitation, exploitation of natural resources to maximize uh, 
human uh, economics and human numbers in the countries that we're doing the exploiting. Um, and it's only been in the last century that there's been a sustained effort to try to talk people into not having so many people, you know, reduce the numbers of people, and to try to um, and do a philosophy of trying to live in harmony with the world's ecosystems and resources instead of just exploiting and, and trying to ever expand. And it seems to me like that regardless of what the climate actually does in the next century, if we really do wind up with 12 or 15 or God knows how many billions of people, there's going to be disasters regardless of what the climate does. And there are pressing socioeconomic issues that necessarily are more intense and more important than climate change, but it doesn't negate the long-term potential disasters that climate change may, may cause. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.